the format of this meeting is two 10-minute speakers, followed by our information break, and then our main speaker who will speak for 30 minutes. Our first 10-minute speaker is Zach. Hi, my name is Zach and I'm an alcoholic. It's an honor and a privilege to be here at the Atlantic Group and speak. I thank Daniel for asking me. It's, I don't deserve to be here. I don't deserve anything I have in my life today. I should be dead based on the things that I was up to before I came into this room, into these rooms. And I'm just going to say a quick prayer real quick to settle my nerves and hopes that this can be helpful to at least one person here, and I'm going to ask God to grant me this, this serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. My sobriety date is May 31st, 2022. I've got a sponsor. His name is Jeremy. He knows he's my sponsor. I'm currently working on step four, and my sponsor has a sponsor named Jeffrey, and I met him too. I guess before I know this 10 minutes is gonna go by quick, if you don't identify or relate to my story, that's okay. I personally have to work on just identifying with how the speaker feels as it relates to the thoughts that precede a drink, the thoughts that follow a drink, and not necessarily whether or not my experience is the same experience that, that they had. I, I never lived under the bridge. I never lost my job. But, and, and because those things didn't happen, I spent a lot of time when I first was coming into the rooms questioning the fact that whether or not I was an alcoholic. There was a part of me that thought, hey, maybe I can still manage doing what I was doing. The reality is I'm an alcoholic because I have an obsession over drinking. And once I stop, once I start, I can't stop. And for a long time, I really wanted to stop and couldn't stop. And I was imprisoned by myself. And at first it was fun. I started drinking in high school and started getting attention. And it was like the first time I got the monkey off my back of being irritable, restless, and discontent. And I didn't know those were the words that, that characterized my state of being before getting sober. I grew up in an alcoholic household, you could say. There was chaos, my dad was an alcoholic. There's a lot of crazy stuff going on. And I've also realized being in the program, I don't know if my upbringing is the reason why I'm an alcoholic. I could have been born like it. And ultimately it's not worth me trying to analyze and figure out, even though I wanted to know exactly, you know, which variable led to this and that. It's just simple. I, I came into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, and so that was enough for me to at least stay. And I heard people identified with them, got a sponsor, and I've just been coming one day at a time. So I'll, I'll just share, you know, if, if anybody can identify. Drinking got, it, it, at first it was fun, then it was a tool. 
you know, during college, it was like work really hard during the week, blow off and celebrate, like rinse and repeat. And I used to actually think drinking was a tool for me. I, I used to look up to um, Ernest Hemingway and think, man, you know, he drank and was creative. Like, I know that that's what I need to do to be, to like spark my creative juices and maintain my motivation. And that was just my, I've since realized that that's just my disease telling me I don't have a disease. I shouldn't say my disease, I should say we, because it's a we program and there's no me if there's no we. So, yeah, things got bad, I would say. I dated a girl in college and we were together for a long time. I truly thought this was the girl I was going to marry. The only thing was that I had a more important relationship in my life, and that was my relationship with alcohol. And I took her for granted. I didn't show up to the things she wanted me to show up for. I only did the things that I wanted to do. And, you know, this program has taught me, and I still have to remind myself every single day, including today, that the world doesn't revolve around me. And I remember she texted me and said, hey, thanks, Kurt. She texted me and said, hey, um, you know, we need to talk. And I had a couple of drinks. She came over. She broke up with me. And at the, mo in the, at the moment, I was medicinal. And I was like, yeah, whatever. And I just remember waking up the next morning and just, I, I felt like death. It's the only word that can describe how I felt, just complete emptiness. And from then, that was five, six years ago. And so from then on out, alcohol became a crutch for me to live my life. And then the unmanageability really started to take place. And I know there's, I know this is quick, so I won't get into all the, the bad things, but really there were so many situations. I was drinking before work. All I could think about during work was why did I drink before work? This sucks. And then I was like, I can't wait for work to end because I want to have a drink. And then I would promise myself, okay, this is it. And then the next day I'd get punched in the face a little bit. And then I'd say, screw it. I'd walk to the wherever pick up. And I just recall, you know, even when I would go pick up, I would feel a rush before I actually had the drink. And then I had the drink and I'm, I'm like, you know what? This wasn't as good as I had made up in my mind, but it's all I know how to do. So I'm going to keep doing it. So, yeah, long story short, COVID things got really bad. And the point where drinking really stopped working for me was went out to a concert with some buddies, stood too close to the speakers for too long, woke up the next morning. Couldn't hear. Uh, the, the hearing came back a little bit and pretty much, long story short, I developed a ringing in my ear, which the doctor says is going to last forever. And um, I, that's when the drinking just immediately stopped working. I wanted to kill myself. Moved up to New York for a new job and my mom had kicked my dad out of the house around the same time. And I called my dad. I don't know why I called him and told him this, but I said, Dad, I, I want to kill myself. And he said, well, before you do that, why don't you check out an AA meeting? I've been going and it's really been helping me. So I said, screw it. And that's the intersection in my mind of divine intervention and willingness. I can't explain how all the series of events aligned for me to walk into this program. And I can't bet on them repeating. So I just have to make this time stick and just keep coming every day and just take it one day at a time. So yeah, I go to my first meeting in Soho. I heard a guy speak and I thought, man, I actually really relate to that guy's story and how he felt with drinking. And I was leaving the rooms and I was rushed out of there and some guy came behind me and said, hey, keep coming back. You're going to meet some really cool people. And I'm like looking at him and his wife was at the meeting and his wife was smoking hot. <laughs> and 
and I and I thought, you know, that did it. I was like, you know what, this guy has something I want. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna keep coming back. So, and not to make it about that, but it was. It, and then the next day, I met some guys my age. They told me about packs. I sat at the beginners table, and I just AA has given me this this unconditional love that I didn't realize that I was always looking for. It's taught me that I don't have to solve this on my own. I've outsourced all of my problems and all my thinking to the people, to the guys I've met in the program and my sponsor. I don't have to take it because I've realized that it's the things that I want to do that don't make me feel good. It's usually doing the things that I don't want to do that make me feel good, which makes no sense, but that's just something that I've learned. And I just, you know, the biggest thing for me, because it's easy day to day to get whipsawed into life and the things that come and, I just have to remind myself, like, what am I doing right now? I can't change the past. I can't change the future, even though my, my mind does not want to live in the present. And I have to keep reminding myself, I feel the way I feel because I do the things that I do. And if I do the things I've always done, I'm going to get what I've always got. I'm going to stop there. Thank you. Our second 10-minute speaker is Nanda. All right. Hi, everyone. I'm Nana. I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> Sobriety date is April 4th, 2015. My home is living now. Um, I got sober in Philadelphia, in the suburbs. And uh, I have a sponsor who I work the 12, step, the 12 steps with, a sponsor now. Um, and I just want to start off by saying I'm a very, I'm very much a low bottom alcoholic. It's not, I'm not functional. It's not cute. It's uh, even though I have a place to stay with my parents, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get an, I'm gonna overdraft my bank account to get an Airbnb to drink on my own the way I want to. Um, it's a lot of messy situations, and I, it's actually astounding that I'm here in front of a group like this. Um, I'm a socially anxious person. I would have never guessed that this would be happening. Um, but anyway, I um, I come from a lovely family. I mean, my parents are from Africa. Uh, it's a huge part of my identity that I think I often leave out in these spaces. My dad's an alcoholic. We drink very differently. My mom, not really a drinker. My siblings don't have this disease. And I used to blame a lot of my alcoholism on you know, genetics, there's you no know, family and all that kind of stuff. And at the end of the day, I just drank because it was the perfect solution for me. I didn't want to feel slash I only wanted to feel euphoria. Alcohol seems to fix a lot of problems for me in the very beginning. Um, I got sober in medical school, which was a, a ride. Um, it took me seven years to finish a four-year program, but... Um, I don't know, I just remember sort of taking a step back. I, I drank for, um, just remember back to when I was in, in college and I was doing this African dance performance and I was so nervous and every time we would rehearse, I would just fumble and mess up and for some reason, the first night of the performance, I thought, what if I take a shot of vodka and we'll see how it goes? And I did it and it actually went really well. And I got so much praise from everybody and I said, well, clearly I have to keep doing this. And fast forward to me being a medical student, that quickly, it's a lot of medical school is performance. It's 
presentations, and I didn't know I was signing up for that going into medicine. But you know, at some point, I thought, well, I'm, I have anxiety. People are pointing it out. I clearly need to go back to that solution that I have. And it, again, the phrase in the beginning, and at some point, people would start leaning in and take a sniff and then back away. And I kind of knew that they knew, but I never, no one really said anything. Um, and so, I don't know. Um, I needed to go into treatment just because of pleading out the story. And when I was in inpatient, I remember there was an AA meeting and the women who were speaking over two and they were beautiful and they had their nails done and they just had these like, luxury bags and again like I want that and I was just I was crazy and I wanted it and so that that's what got me into the program and then I started going to meetings in the suburbs of Philadelphia which is very different from here. Um and I was on the pinkest clouds and I'm so I think I'm one of the few people who came into these rooms really excited to be here because I was crazy and I my hair was short and it was like red and I would get my hand up multiple times in the meeting and talk for a really long time and then always get interrupted with thanks for sharing. You were just like really sad. <laughs> I think I come across a little bit more put together than that now. Um, but I, you know, I, at that point, I was on uh, probation from medical school. So I really wanted to go back to school and they were like, no. They actually didn't even want me back. Um, so I had to demonstrate that I could have a sustained period of sobriety in order to go back. So I was out of school for a year, and that's absolutely not what I wanted to do. But my higher power said, stop, you are absolutely not ready. And so I did the things that I was told to do. I did a 90 and 90 um, several times. Sometimes when I was really crazy, I would go to meetings three times a day. And, you know, that's what I needed. I had nothing else to do but focus on recovery. And in retrospect, it's such a blessing. Um, and I had a sponsor, I didn't really work the steps. And, you know, I was in the middle of the program in the first couple of years of sobriety, right in the middle. Um, fellowship was huge for me and bringing me into the program. And I was always sort of, always felt like an outsider and a weirdo. And being in this space told me that I could have meaningful connections with people. And I'm actually pretty personable. And, you know, I learned a lot about myself in this program. And I remember when it was time for me to go back into to go before a committee in order to go back to medical school. Um, and I'm so nervous about that. We talk about it at every single meeting. So everybody at my home group knew exactly what my story was and ultimately got back in. And just the way the, the people of the program held me up and loved me and um, just the way they were there for me, I could not imagine. I never thought I deserved that kind of love and support from people that were not my family. Um, but the room, the people were my higher power for a while. Um, so I'll, I'll tell you this, I was in the middle of the program for quite a long time, uh, five years of sobriety, I, you know, all the promises of AA were coming up for me. I, you know, graduated from school, was in a residency program, which is the next level of training, like all these really good things that I never thought could happen for me. And, you know, they were happening and I thought, well, I, I made it and I don't really need this program anymore. <laughs> and so, you know, all these good things were happening and then about a year, I kind of felt like a hamster in the hamster wheel, doing the same things that in theory should make me happy and I was miserable. And what I realized is that I was working the steps in reverse. Um, so completely disconnected from my higher power. I didn't met, I mean, I never really meditated 
but I was very mindless, was mindful, didn't pay attention, um, took everybody's inventory except for mine. Um, just sort of that reemergence of character defects, <laughs> owing a lot of people a lot more meant. Um, a lot of defects around mistrust and judgment came up for me. And um, and then, you know, just building, building resentments, I found other things to become my higher power. Often, you know, a relationship, a boyfriend, man, sex, sort of the usual things. And, um, and then my life felt incredibly insane and unmanageable. And so out of desperation, I went to a meeting after not going for consistently for almost a year. Um, and my old sponsor happened to be on that meeting on Zoom. It was an interview style meeting in Philadelphia. And so the guy interviewing said, hey, you know, Sandy's here. Do you want her to sponsor you again? And I said, sure. And so I started going through the steps again. And I have to tell you, getting back into the work of the program is really hard. Um, and it's true for everybody. But um, reinvesting was sort of like a year or so of recommitment over and over again. Um, and I'll tell you, I moved to New York two years ago. Last year was the hardest year of my life. I got very medically sick. I'm a doctor. I hate doctors. I can't even tell you how much I hate doctors. Um, but I, you know, in the hospital, a town, lots of ER visits, and I knew the city. I felt very alone. And I remember hating how people would ask me how I was doing, and I would want to scream. I'm like, I feel the same. I'm going to be this way. It's a chronic illness. I'm going to be this way forever. And I got tired of going to meetings. I didn't want to go because I didn't want to, to own that I was really sad and scared and it's not a temporary situation. So I stopped going and was afraid of crying and being vulnerable. And I think it's easy for me to be vulnerable when I'm like, oh, that problem's going to go away. But when this new situation's in front of me that I didn't have a clear solution to, I just, I wanted to hide. So I didn't talk to people. I went to meetings, but was all the way in the back, would come late, leave early. All the things that people tell me covers to not do in the beginning, I was doing it. And nobody really knew me for a year and a half or so, even though I was, you know, in the rooms technically. So uh, fast forward to this past March, I met a woman who was new to the city, and she was just doing it, going to meetings, meeting people, fellowshipping. And she, I was like, how is this woman who's been here for six months more connected than me? I've been here for a year and a half. And so I just started going to meetings all over the city. And all of these magical things happen. I started reworking the steps. I'm on my ninth step right now. Um, and just like some incredible stuff is happening. I'll just sort of fast forward to the fact that I feel, I don't know what my higher power is, but I kind of define it as this loving, maternal, or grandmotherly presence where, it's, you know, some, it's, it's a real voice where it's like, you know, you really did not handle that situation well, but you know, you'll get it next time. Or I know you can, it's just it's a loving voice and I feel connected with my higher power. I'm trying to pray. I'm a big prayer, but I've been doing that a lot more recently. And my prayers are simply, I pray for happiness and health for the people that I love and that I resent. And then when I'm, and then I'll let God, what next? And then I'm trying to just listen for God's whispers and, um, and what my higher power is saying to me. But, um, I've come to believe that if I hear things twice, be in a meeting or anywhere else, that's my higher power speaking to me and saying, you need to pay attention to this. And that's a lot of stuff about judgment and being critical of myself and others right now. But uh, I'm just so grateful I got to do this. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for letting me share. My name is Karen. 
Our main speaker tonight is Adam. You guys can hear me? Alan, I'm calling. First and foremost, I'd like to thank Preacher for asking me to speak. I got a call on Sunday night from him, and I thought, girl, she will call me on Sunday, whatever, and I knew it was coming. Um, where did I get out of it now, at the end of the year? Um, I spoke here 10 years ago, and I got to say, the rush back then is the same as it is tonight, so I was excited to speak in front of a large group. Um, my story is very linear. Um, so I got 30 minutes to tell you what it was like, what it's like now, and how I got here. I was born in Manhattan, recently moved to Paris, Puerto Rico. Um, I was one of two, and I think I was off to the races as soon as I came out of my mother's room. I was the quintessential problem child. Hyperactive, energetic, adventurous. I was crazy before I took my first drink, but I was trying to be funny. And um, uh, I grew up in New York City when, when kids lived outside, and I gravitated towards the Hamburg Courts and Queens, and there was always older guys drinking things out of brown paper bags. And um, I was 12 years old when I started playing handball, and I'd already been experimenting with cigarette smoking, probably child. And I, would, I was curious to know if these guys were drinking these brown paper bags, so I would go up to them and be like, hey, can I get a sip of whatever that is? And they'd be like, ha ha, no kid, but you can have a dry this. And they would give me a funny smell cigarette. And uh, I tried the funny smell cigarette, and I gotta tell you, I fell in love right away with funny smell cigarettes. Um, now, my buddies had already started drinking before I was smoking the funny smell cigarettes. I wasn't really, I didn't really, alcohol didn't have a pull for me because they always behaved boorishly when they drank. And I, I saw no excitement of that. But at 14, I went back to a party. There was a girl there that I had a crush on. I didn't have any money for funny small cigarettes that day. So I knew I needed something in my system to approach this girl. So they were serving alcohol. And I went up to the woman. I mind you, at 14 years old, I was the exact same height, but about 40 pounds lighter. And I asked this woman for the only alcohol that she knew I knew was a beer, a second house to be And she gave me a very large glass of 50% alcohol and 50% orange juice. And I proceeded to drink this. And an amazing thing happened. I started to feel the effects of alcohol. And um, I, I, I wouldn't say I was completely drunk when I had that first drink, but the phenomenon of craving definitely kicked in because as soon as I was done with that first finger on the eye, I immediately wanted another one. And then it became the night of my dreams. Uh, so the girl was in the room, we were tasting the bottle, the bottle hit her, it hit me, we started drinking out, and then I went to a brownout. I think I got one more screwdriver after that. And then I went to a complete blackout. So the first time I drank, I completely blacked out. And in this blackout, I remember being in a car with the girl I like and her best friend. And I just started projectile vomiting all over her and her. And I, was, I remember this because it kind of sold me out for a second. And I woke up the next day and uh, the girl was like, you know, you didn't tell us where you were so I brought us to my sister. I was so embarrassed. I just ran out of there. And this is everything about the country until I was 17. So, alcohol took, I was like, you know, I had arrived, I discovered the University of Nightlife in 1988. I started going to the tunnel. Um, I was a weekend warrior at first. I started uh, clubbing on the weekends, and the drink would start on Friday, then it became Saturday, and 
which was Sunday, and that was a club kid all week long. And uh, I discovered um, that you can it's, you can put certain driveways in a pipe that prevents you from blacking out. So this became like my thing. Every weekend I would drink, go on missions, and just drink. And my parents started to notice something was different. Something was changing. Uh, my grades in school were going down. They're like, listen, what's going on? You're never here. Your grades are going down. You're losing weight. And what's up? Do you have a problem with your so I was like, maybe. And they were like, well, you need to go get help. So to get my parents on my back, I, I went to Daytop. But I didn't stay. I left right away. And then I went to Phoenix House. And then I went to Odyssey House. I went to every therapeutic community you could think of to get my parents on my back. And at the age of 20, my parents finally went to a house and said, if you keep taking it back and he leaves, he's never going to get back. So at 20, I came home and the locks were changed and there was a letter in, back in my bag and the said, we love you, but you need help. So essentially, I was homeless at the age of 20. Um, I didn't want help, so I just hung out in the neighborhood where all the bars were, all the drivers were, and I started hanging out with the dentists in the night. And to support my drinking and drug habit, I started to commit petty crimes, started with the Burglarizing homes, I quickly realized I would get too paranoid. It wasn't for me, so I stopped that. And then I started to storm on my people. I got to the guard of the castle to rob people. And this was more my thing. Because it was quick, it was a rush, get the money, get the booze and whatever, and it was bang bang. And you know. So I, I terrorized Jackson High School for about 10 months. And July 23rd, 1992. I was 20 years old. I was on a playground. Um, I was in a stolen taxi cab. It was a little cab that they took the antenna off and put the CP in the, uh, in the trunk. And I didn't drive. So I had another guy driving me while I jumped out and robbed people. In broad daylight, all over Queens. And um, we were in a neighborhood that I didn't know very well. And by accident, we passed by a precinct. People had to call me and say, hey, there's this little guy jumping down the Grinch, the screwdriver, you know, get him, please. And uh, they saw the car, and they assumed it was a high speed car chase on the Grand Central Parkway. And I literally thought that I was going to get away. Like, I was sitting in the mirror, and I was like, okay, I will see the cops. So I didn't think he'd throw away anything. Stolen goods. But God had different plan that day. That day there was construction on the highway in all three lanes. Backed up, and there was no place for us to go. And we slammed into a Corvette at about 40 miles an hour. I was not ready to see that. So, I gotta tell you, God was always with me. I hit the windshield at about 30 miles an hour, and all I got was like this little scar. It's thumbing me my goatee, but and I shouldn't even see it. But it knocked me out long enough that when I got out of the car run, there was about 50 cops pulling us in, saying the freeze. So I froze. And uh, immediately laid in the highway, looked up at the sky, and I knew right then and there that the jig was up. I went to Rikers Island, I had been arrested many times before, and the legal aid, I got the same legal aid all the time. He came to the bullpen, he said, Hey, buddy, you're, you know, you're in trouble. You're got, you know, we got you dead, so right. I don't know if I can get you out of this, it's no problem. Um, went to Rikers Island. And eventually, after six months, I was like, I thought that was a five and a half. 
and 16 and a half years in the state penitentiary. Now, mind you, I was 20 years old. I come from a good family, loving, club kid, not a criminal. I'm only a criminal when I put booze and drivers into my body. So I had to go into this facility and change my entire attitude because there's predators in there. But I'm a street kid, so I survived. And uh, I quickly learned just that you can make homemade wine. And I became a wine connoisseur. When I was in prison for six and a half years, I made wine with grapefruit juice, sugar, bread, and yeast. And it was good. And uh, so, needless to say, after six and a half years of doing nothing for myself, I got paroled. Um, my parents came from the Upper East Side. When I was in prison, they were like the Jeffersons and the Dark. And I got paroled to the and third. And when I got out of prison, I was 175 pounds of long hair, resentment, and cluelessness. I was completely institutionalized and I got out. I didn't know what to do. So I, in about a week of my release, I picked up a drink. And I was on parole for a long time. And uh, this sadly last for a long street. Uh, three months. I lasted three months. I went on one day and I was hungover. And the girl said, Ugh, she don't want to see me again. And uh, on a drunken binge, uh, I passed out my apartment and I went to home visit that day. And my parole officer came in and said, You're not ready to be home. I'm sending you back. So uh, she wanted to put me in the 18 month program and I refused. I said, I'll take a year in prison over that. Um, and I went to the tombs. And in the tombs, I was sitting in my cell and I said a box over there. I was like 27, going to stay to do another year. And I was going to be seven and a half years. And I said to God, you know, something's got to give. If I continue to live this way, this is going to be it for the rest of my life. And at that moment, the uh, officer on the gallery called the name. I had been to meetings before, but I never really paid attention. But the little voice inside me said, you know what? Go check out this AA meeting. And I did. I walked into this meeting and there was two guys. One guy I can't remember is not was not descriptive, right? But the other guy was this tall, lanky, kind of dark, gum shoey, you know what I mean? Lucky handsome and very kind of like, right? And he started talking. And I said, oh my God, this, I can relate to this thing. And I immediately went up to him and I said, hey, well, where do you go to meetings? I mean, I, I, he's like, I go to Atlantic. I said, where is that? He said, somebody on the east side. Oh, I think on the east side. So, so right there, he planted the seed. A year later, I didn't do any, I didn't make any wine for the year. I was sober the whole year. I was up there. A year later, I came out and I pulled back to the east side. And my first official meeting at Alcoholics Anonymous was this one. I walked in. And I thought to myself, wow, there's a lot of girls in this room. <laughs> it had been eight and a half years since I had any intimacy. So, I mean, like, whatever keeps coming back, right? Like, honestly, I'm not going to say that's what got me out of that, but it was a plus. And uh, I immediately got right into this group. Um, I, I went up to the guy who uh, gave me the information. I think you guys know what I'm talking about, Ron B. And uh, I was like, you know, welcome back. And um, 
I started to do work and I sponsored. It wasn't Ram. Ram's a sponsor now, but I didn't go to Ram when I first got here. When I first got here, I went to another guy, Italian guy. My height, rough, kind of rough, you know, kind of cool, right? I kind of related to this guy because I was in prison with these native Italians and he had that edge. And I said, Can you be my sponsor? He said, Yeah, you're a stop program. <laughs> I was like, All right, whatever. I don't know what that means, but I'm, I'm game. I'm game. I started working the steps. Um, I didn't know what to do about career. I was thinking for a long time. Somebody suggested, because I worked out a lot, I should be a personal trainer. And I said, Oh, that sounds pretty cool. I started working on the edge I didn't love that. Someone else suggested that you can chop it in the Like I was like, really? Me? He's like, dude, trust me. And I know somebody there. I'll hire you. Just go speak to this guy. And I went into Bloomingdale's and they hired me immediately. It was six months after I had this person. I was a perfume guy. <laughs> that was me. I was spraying the paper. He tried his. It's got patchouli. It's got my new black. I mean, I was wearing a suit. My P.O. would come visit me and smile at me. She couldn't believe it. She said, oh my God, this guy actually turned his life around. And, uh, <laughs> yes. This is funny. Anyway, needless to say, so I started getting a lot of new cash prizes. And, you know, I started having very possible for You know, I was here for two years. And the funny thing happened. Uh, other things started to take precedence over the program. You know, take the kid off the street, club kid, doing all these things. You know, I have so much. I didn't know what was happening. It seemed like clock nine. But I didn't realize that if you saw this thing out, if you put anything in front of the gate, you're going to lose it. You're going to lose it. So I used to work at a sex club on the weekends. My parole officer didn't know about it. It was actually cash. And somebody at the sex club asked me if I wanted to work at a party promoting great news. Great News Vodka came out. And I was like, what is that? He said, it's a new vodka, a new party, yada, yada. So I said, sure. So I went to work this Great News promotion, and I had already like skipped out of meetings. I wasn't calling Vince as much as I used to. And I wasn't going to any meetings. And I was the model probably money in the bank. I'm in no danger of relapsing. But that's not the case. They stationed me at the bar. And all night, the bartender would get asking if I want to drink. And he'd say, No, I'm sober, I can drink. But eventually, about the third time that she asked me, I said, You know what? Let me get a long island iced tea, like now. I mean, because I knew that that LIT would make me, would put me in a good place. And I think I had about five of them. And I hadn't had a drink in a couple of years. And I was going into that blackout at this party that I'm working. Freezing out. It's the middle of winter. And I was like, all right, I can't leave this spinning in my head. I need some dry goods now to curb that spinning. I hate that, that feeling of. So the dry goods kills that right away. So there was a long line for my jacket. I decided to forget the line. I left this place with a t shirt on. It's actually wasn't a t shirt. I was wearing, I was getting into fashion. I was into fashion. I was wearing the Velvet chiffon, see-blue, low-tea top. It's a muscle shirt. And I got to Queens in a brown house, and I purchased dry goods, and I went to the alleyway to do the dry goods, and I heard a walkie-talkie behind me. 
I knew it. I was super happy. Walking, talking. I sobered right up. I heard it. All I heard was freeze. I had heard those words in 12 years. I was like, man, I'm down. Remember each <laughs> Not a good look for me. It's a terrible look for me. So I just, I just tried to get the town. And it was Friday night. I went to the system. They released me. Cut all my own recognizance. But I had my PO visit that Monday. And that Monday when I went in, a PO had a look on her face like somebody stole the puppy. She looked mortified. Just so sad. And I was like, well, what's going on? She went back over the weekends. They went out over the weekends. She was I said, I did? I said, yeah, I came up on the computer. It's automatic. I said, yeah, I have a relapse, no big deal. I mean, I'll go back to my computer. How days again? She goes, well, not so fast. You're a violent felon. You're not going anywhere. They want you back. Within two minutes, I had the cops on me again. I mean, like, just think about that. Prison the first time around was fine. Prison the second time around was all right. Third time around was not the charm. I was like devastated. I was like, I can't do this. I tell them, where are you doing this? I saw my phone. What are you doing? They don't care. I'm by the phone. They put me back in my side that night. And I can tell you, I was, I, I can't describe in words the visceral pain I was in. I tell you, I was crying all day long in that chair cell. So I was crying so much that hard criminals were like, dude, do you want to talk? Is <laughs> there something I could do to help you through this pain? I was like, no, not really. Thanks. I am. Anyway, long story short, they had mercy on me. I had, you know, my sponsor was on the bench, wrote a letter to the parole board. A few people did. I think they did. did I remember. Something, something. And they, instead of giving me a year in prison, they gave me a nine year program. And that's God right there. Because I'm about to fell and I know this is going to a 90-day program. But God was a being and he's like, all right, we'll stop the madness. So I went to this 90-day program, I gotta tell you, it felt longer than eight and a half years ago. It's awful. It shaved your head, it's like military-based. I had a girlfriend at the time, a Bloomingdale's girlfriend, and she came to visit me while I was there, and she cried so much on the visit floor that I sent her home. I said, it's home. It's too much. And uh, that was March 9th, 2002, which is my new summer day. Um, I got released in August. I went back to that sponsor, and I said, okay, I'm ready to do this the right way. I'm ready to do the right way. He said, okay, good. And we started to rework the steps. I did a, a full fourth and fifth. I didn't leave anything out. I left the three things out the first time. I'm going to tell you right now, we do that, enjoy it. It's probably what got me in trouble because I left the feelings out. And I just dedicated my life to this program, and it's been the number one thing in my life for the last 21 years. Um, I've been here for 21 years. I gotta tell you, life, you know, I got 10 years to tell you what it's like. <clears throat> life is great, life is bad, life is up, life is down. I've had a lot of things happen to me in the last 21 years. Uh, the same state that put me away for almost 10 years gave me a license to do the hair. <laughs> Scissors in my hands. <laughs> anyway, I don't do that. Think about that. 
I think two people wrote that is, I think it was it's maybe mine, it's a licensing board. Because I went to hair school for 11 months and they could have sent one help, no license for anybody. They were fine with filming, but they got into me again and I got my license. I still licensed to become hair. So I also got into makeup. It's really weird. Um, in working at Bloomingdale's, you're exposed to that. I started dating a girl makeup artist, and she taught me how to do makeup. That was a lot of fun. I'm going to straight in the box. Um, uh, what else? I mean, I, I just I can't imagine my life for what it would look like without this program in God. I mean, I just have to be in prison. I'd be dead. Somebody would have shot me. I'm sure I would have tried to rob the wrong person. But you know, God had no plans for me. He's like, I'm not you kid, I'm gonna get you on the screen and he's written out. And I, I'm grateful, I'm eternally grateful for that, for that intervention from my higher power. Like he just was like, Ooh. I think about it, there's so many people that will never come in here. They just never will get this. And we're so lucky. Like that we got this program. We want to drink and drugs and all this crazy stuff. You know, so I mean look at that time my mother, she's no, my mom's a hairdresser. He's saying, in the family, you have one person that you most like. Me and my mother are very much alike. She's been my best friend for a very long time. She got diagnosed with dementia a few years back, and she's, she's almost gone. And I've just been reading since March. And I never talk about setting news, but like, it's a constant, like, you know, I can't even tell you about what's going on in the day. I mean, I'm in trouble, probably doing drugs and drinking. Moments for sure, but because I'm here, I have so much people around me, and everyone's so big. I can get through it. I can deal with some racism in me. Um, since being sober, I, I got a passport in the theater about 20 times with that property in Portugal. That's gone now, it's an apartment in Portugal. This only happens in Alcoholics Anonymous. Like, honestly, like, this is just what happens here. I gotta tell you, it's been great. Probably gonna end soon so we can go early. I'm spitzing up here as you can see, and I'm pretty much done. But thank you, God, thank you, Ron, thank you, Richie, for my life. I love you all, child. My name is Preacher, and I'm an alcoholic, and I chair the Atlanta group. Let's thank tonight's speakers, Zach, Nana, and Ava. Thank you.